right, well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, if you are new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Will, and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at the church. And regardless of how you are connecting with us today, uh, we are so glad you are here. Whether you are here at the East Memphis campus or maybe you're tuning in from somewhere at church at home or maybe you're from the Carterville campus, we are so grateful for you and we are uh, considered an honor and a blessing to worship with you today. Now, this morning, we are in the ninth week of our 12-week series through the letter of Colossians. And in the passage today, the Apostle Paul is going to take uh, the same concepts, the same topic that we addressed last week, and he's going to further explain it and unpack it for us. And so today what we're going to see is Paul's going to take that idea of a heavenly life versus an earthly life. He's going to dig deeper into it. And what he's going to do in this passage is he's actually going to use clothing language, apparel language, to describe how we should be growing in our relationship with Jesus here on earth. What, what Paul is, is going to teach us is that in order for us to grow into the heavenly person that we currently are, call, that we are called to be, we need to constantly be putting off the old man, the old nature, the old self, and we have to then instead be constantly be putting on the new man, the new nature, the new self. So that's what we're going to be unpacking today. And in order to do that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at this passage under two headings. We are going to begin today by looking at the first step which Paul calls us to take on a daily consistent basis, which is to put off the old. And then the second step that we're going to look at and conclude with is to put on the new. So we're going to look at put off the old, and then we're going to look at what it means to put on the new. But let's begin today by looking at the first step, which is to put off the old. And to do that, I want to direct your attention to verses 5 through 11. 5 through 11. Look what Paul writes. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the, after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So what we see here in, in this first section is that Paul says the, the first step that we as believers, if you're sitting here today and you are a follower of Jesus, Paul says that the first step that you and I must daily and consistently be taking in order to grow more into the image of our creator is we have to constantly and daily be putting off the old man, the old nature, the old self. That's what Paul is teaching us here. Now, in the passage, the Apostle Paul, he, he uses two different phrases 
to say the exact same thing. The phrases seem different on the surface, uh, but really they are telling us the same exact thing. And these two phrases, what they do is they describe for us the relationship that you and I should have with the sin in our life. The, the first word, the first phrase that Paul uses to describe our relationship with sin is he says that we are to put it to death. We are to put it to death. And then the second phrase that he uses to describe our relationship with sin is that we are to put it off. Put it off or take it off. So let's unpack both of these phrases because in order to truly understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand biblically uh, what he means by each one of these statements. The first thing he says is that we are to put sin to death. Th that phrase in Greek, it, it literally means to, to make something or to consider something as dead. In other words, what Paul is saying is that now that we are in Christ, we are dead to sin and sin should be dead to us. When we, when we were in Adam, we were dead in sin. And now that we are in Christ, we are dead to sin. That's what Paul is saying. The word there, that phrase there, put to death, also means to deprive something of its power. It literally means to starve something, to cut the supply line from something. It means to take extreme measures in order to cease or stop a certain activity. Paul says that our first relationship with sin should be to put it to death. And here's the thing. That Greek word, that Greek phrase, put to death, it's an aorist imperative. And what does that mean? Well, imperative means it's a command, right? But an aorist means that it's a past tense action. It is a once and for all action that happened in the past and now is true in the present. In other words, Paul says that when we deal with our sin, we kill it in such a way that it no longer comes back. We don't give it a chance to resurrect. So that's the first phrase. The, the second phrase that Paul uses, which again, sleep seems different, but really at the heart of it, he's saying similar things, is not only are we put, are to put sin to death, but we also are to put sin off, literally to take it off. The, the word there in Greek means to undress, to strip off your clothing, to disrobe, to put something behind you and to move past it. Clothing language to take off, to put off the garments of sin. Now, this word, this phrase is slightly different than the first one, put to death, because even though it is also an imperative aorist, it's a command in its past tense, this word in particular, that phrase to put off, it's in the middle voice. And why is that important? Because in the Greek, the, the middle voice is an action that the person is doing to themselves. In other words, the only person that can put off sin in your life is you. That's what Paul is teaching us. So the Apostle Paul says, here's what he's teaching us, that at the end of the day, when it comes to our relationship with sin, church, we don't manage our sin. We don't subdue our sin. We don't steward our sin. We don't control our sin. We don't coddle our sin. We don't put our sin on time out. We kill our sin. We put it off. We exterminate it completely and totally. That's what the Apostle Paul wants us to know. That when it comes to our sinful nature, when it comes to our sin, when it comes to our flesh, you are either killing sin and destroying it, or it is killing you and destroying you. 
One commentator put it this way. He said that sin is like an overthrown monarch. It's like an overthrown king that has been removed from its power. So it no longer has power to condemn you or to judge you. But now it's doing everything in its power to destabilize you and to distract you and to attack you and to disturb you. What Puritans say is that sin is like a cancerous tumor. And if you don't deal with the tumor, the tumor is going to spread. There's no such thing as keeping sin in just one area of your life. Like, you know what? I don't have it all together here, but I'm killing it over here. Sin is like a tumor, like leaven in bread. It spreads. If you don't deal with it, if you don't remove it, if you don't perform surgery, it will spread throughout your life. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 29 and 30 says something very similar to Paul. Jesus says that if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your, hands cause, if your hand causes you to, and literally in the Greek is your, your, your strong hand, whatever your strong hand is, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, Jesus isn't literally saying we do that, but what he is saying metaphorically is that that's how drastic we have to be with our sin, church. That's how drastic we have to be with the sin in our life. But, but here's the thing, right? If we're being honest, uh, the reason why me and many of us still struggle with the same similar sin patterns that we struggled with five years ago and 10 years ago and 15 years ago, not just in our personal lives but in our marriages, the reason why we still struggle with the same sin is because if we're being honest, we really don't want to give sin the death blow. We want to coddle it. We want to put it on timeout. We want to punish it. Heck, we'll even put it in an induced coma, but we are not going to kill it. We really don't want it to die. Because if we did, Paul says that we would. You know, a lot of us, including me, we're, we're like the guy in the, the story of, uh, in the great divorce story, the C.S. Lewis story. In, in the great divorce, for those of you who've never heard of that book, is essentially a parable. It's, it's a metaphor of, 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 of heaven. And in that story, he, he tells, C.S. Lewis puts himself in the story, and he's getting a tour of heaven. And as they walk through heaven, he's walking with his mentor, George MacDonald, who had already died by then. And George MacDonald is showing him heaven. And they come across uh, uh, this conversation that's happening between a young man and an angel. And the young man is struggling with the sin of lust. And it's become such a stronghold, such an addiction in his life, that it literally has become a creature that has grown out of his shoulder. And he is sitting there and he's muttering and complaining about how much he hates this sin of lust and how much it's destroyed his life. And so the angel says, well, let me kill it for you. If you hate it so much, let me slay it for you. And immediately the young man goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Who said anything about killing? It's, it's bad, but it's not that bad. And then for the next few pages, this young man and the angel are, just, are literally debating on what to do with this creature, this, this sin of lust. Finally, the man gives it up, and the angel is able to kill the creature, and immediately he is transformed to another degree of life. But here's the thing about the gospel, church. In order for us to experience life, we must first experience death. That's the pattern. That's the cycle. We can't experience the life of salvation if we aren't putting to death our sin. That's how it works. You see, a lot of us are like the Israelites in the book of Exodus. We were living in slavery. We were living in bondage. We were living in sin. God, God delivers us. 
And, and that's not just a exodus, you know, water and, 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 and the ten plagues. It's the greater exodus. The greater exodus is the gospel, and Jesus is the greater Moses. We, we are released, and what do the Israelites do? They're in the wilderness, and within a few days, they start saying, it would have been better for us to never have left Egypt. They couldn't walk in freedom because they preferred to stay in the familiar. This is for somebody. I don't know who this is, but this is for somebody right now, okay? The reason why you are not walking in freedom is because you prefer to stay in the familiar. There's something about the familiar. That, that thing got me through that time. That person got me through that season. That addiction is there for me when no one else is. So some of us, maybe the reason why we're not walking in freedom is because of fear. Or maybe it's because of our failures. But for many of us, it's not fear or failures. It's the familiar. I can't put on the new outfit because this, is, this one's just so comfy. In John chapter 11, uh, Jesus is at the grave of Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead for about four days now. And Jesus starts essentially his march to the cross because it says that the moment he raised Lazarus, at that very moment, the religious leaders decided to kill him. That very moment. That was the miracle that set it all off, right? But, but, but what's beautiful about that passage, and you can read right past it, is that the moment Jesus Christ resurrects Lazarus, the first thing he says is not, hello, Lazarus, how are you? The first thing Jesus says when Lazarus leaves the grave is he says, take those clothes off of him. Take off the grave clothes. Take off the funeral clothes. Why? Because the outfit no longer matches the event. Come on. You see, up to that point, they were commemorating a death. Now, all of a sudden, they are celebrating new life. Jesus says, take off the grave clothes. Take off the funeral clothes because it no longer fits the event. Church, we have to take off the grave clothes. We have to take off the funeral clothes. Jesus, if you are a believer here today, you have been resurrected with Jesus Christ. You have to change the outfit. See, when the Holy Spirit moves into your life, here's what he does. The Holy Spirit shows up, and immediately he goes into the metaphorical closet of your life. And he starts getting rid of the old garments of sin. Like, no, that, that's not going to work anymore. Yep, that, nope. Put that away. And he starts replacing those garments with gospel garments, with the robes of righteousness that we get in Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit, in many ways, is like my wife, Lily. You might not know this about my wife and I, but if you were to go into our closet, uh, there's one side that has a lot of clothes, and one side doesn't have as much. You would think it's her side that has a lot of clothes, but it's actually my side that has a lot of clothes. Now, that's for a couple of reasons. One, your boy likes shopping. Okay, I got to look good. Let's be honest, right? But the other reason, outside of my shopping addiction, is that I don't like getting rid of clothes. I just don't. I don't really like getting rid of anything. Emails, text messages, clothes. Because in my mind, you never know when you'll need it. You just don't. Yeah, I haven't worn that, that short since 2002, but you never know when I'll need it. 
Your boy has a camouflage sweatshirt. The only people that wear camouflage are people that are outside doing things. I don't go outside for anything, and yet I have a camouflage sweatshirt. Just in case I ever have to go outside. <laughs> Never worn it. Still a tag on it. But, but what my wife does, my wife is very different. My wife, when it comes to her emails and when it comes to her text messages and when it comes to her clothes, she is constantly purging, purging, purging. If she doesn't need it anymore, she gets rid of it. Now, that's okay. That's her thing. What bothers me is when she moves to my side of the closet. And I go looking for my 2002 shirt and it ain't there. See, the Holy Spirit is like my wife, Lily. He shows up and he starts getting rid of outfits that you're accustomed to, that, that fit you well, that got you through things. But here's the thing. He doesn't ask you for permission, church. What we see is that when we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves in and he starts to get rid of our old raggedy garments of sin and death. And he starts to replace those and remind us of the robes of righteousness that we have received in Christ. That's what we see. The Holy Spirit says, stop dressing like you're at a funeral when really what we're celebrating is new birth. Church, listen, in order to truly put on the robes of the last Adam, we have to put away the fig leaves of the first one. So the question is this. How do we actually put sins to death? Like, what does that actually look like? Like, what does it look like for me on a daily, practical level to put off the garments of sin? The reason why I need to go here is because if as your pastor, I just talked about the concept and never actually showed you how to do it, then I'm not really helping you. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is talk to you about two ways that you and I can put sin to death in our lives. Two ways that you and I can put off the garments of sin. In order for us to truly kill the sin in our lives, to put it off, we have to deal with sin at the root level, not the fruit level. Remember what I said the word, the phrase there, put to death means. It doesn't just mean to kill, but it means to cut the supply line to something, to starve something of resources. If that's what that phrase means, then I would argue that there are two ways that you and I put sin to death in our life. The, the first way we put sin to death in our life is internally, and then the second way we put sin to death in our life is externally. So let's begin with the first way. The first way that we put sin to death in our life that we kill it, that we put it off, is internally. What do I mean by that? Well, if you remember, we said last week that when we were talking about the word seek, where, where Paul says, seek the things that are above. The word seek there has to do with your affections. It has to do with your longings and your cravings, the heart level. And what we learned last week is that our external actions and emotions are a direct result of our internal affections. That if you want to change your behavior, you have to first address your beliefs. 
So in order for us to truly address and kill the sin in our lives, we can't just deal with sin at the fruit level, our actions, but we must deal with it at the root level, our affections. And here's the thing. In the passage, the apostle Paul, he, he uses uh, two words to reveal to us that our problem is not just external actions or emotions, but internal affections. In, in verse 5, he gives us a list of sins. And right at the end of that list, there's, there's a couple sins that he mentions. One of the sins he mentions is evil desires. And then the other sin that he mentions is idolatry. Both of those words have to do with our affections. Not our actions, but our affections. And what the Apostle Paul argues is that the reason why we commit immorality with our hands is because we've actually first have committed idolatry in our hearts. That's what we see. Let me, let me unpack those two words to show you that they have to do with our heart and with our affections. The first word, desires, in Greek is the word epithumia. It's a word that we looked at when we were in our idolatry series. It, it, up to this point in Greek, there was one word for desires. It was thumia, thumia, thumia. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul creates a brand new word that didn't exist before. In front of the word thumia, he put the prefix epi. Epi means over, an over desire. So, so get this, God has given you desires. God has given you longings. The problem isn't desires or the longings. The problem is when we have an over desire or an over longing. When we start wanting something more than we want Jesus. That's why many times the things we desire are, are good things that we have promoted to be God things. Our marriage, our, 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 our relationships, our career, our education, our finances, our family, romance. They are good things that we should desire, but in our sinfulness, we over-desire, we over-crave, and when we do that, we, put, we promote that thing from just being a good thing, G-O-O-D, to being a God thing, G-O-D. And we promote it to the place of God, and we end up replacing God with whatever that thing is. And that's why the word desire connects with the word idolatry, because an idol is anything that you love or trust or rely on more than Jesus. Both the word desires and the word idolatry, they, they reveal to us that our problem is not ultimately an external action problem, it's an internal affection problem. We have to deal with sin at its root. Listen, if you guys remember during the uh, idolatry series, uh, one of the passages that we looked at was Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, Moses, through the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit of God, he gives us the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that Martin Luther, the reformer, says, I just took my discipleship guides through this content again, but one of the things that Martin Luther says in that passage is he says that in order to break commandments 3 through 10, you must first break commandments 1 and 2. Commandments 1 and 2 have to do with your desires. They have to do with your idolatry. God says, put no other gods before me. The first two commandments have to do with our idolatry. But once you commit idolatry with your heart, it is a lot easier to commit immorality with your hands. So, so let me give you an example. If I lie to you, let's say I'm in a, you and I are hanging out and I, and I exaggerate a story to get your approval. I just told a lie. I broke one of the commandments. 
But before I committed the sin of lying, I actually committed the sin of idolatry. Why? Because in that moment, what you thought of me was more important than what God thought of me. And I was willing to lie in order to get your approval, even though I already had God's approval. You get what I'm saying? Same thing is true with all the other commandments. That in order to break three through ten, you must first break one and two. But it's not just Paul that says this. It's not just Moses that says this. Uh, James, look what James says in chapter 1 of his book, verse 14 and 15. James says, but each person is tempted, get this, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, epithumia. Then desires, epithumia, affections, lead to actions because he says, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, action. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, you, see the, you see how it goes? Your affections lead to your actions, not the other way around. So, so what that means is, church, in order for us to truly kill the sins in our lives, we have to deal with sin at the root and not just with the fruit. So let me illustrate it to you this way. Pretend that tomorrow you get a phone call. And the other, person, the other person on the other side of the line tells you that you have inherited an incredible property of land. Acres and acres of land. So you get excited. The next day you drive out, you get there and you see this beautiful piece of land. And one of the things that catches your eye is that right through this piece of land, there's a river. This beautiful, mighty river flows right through this land that you've just inherited. But, but after being there a few days, you, you start to realize that this river is actually super polluted and there's debris coming through it and there's trash coming through it and there's garbage coming through it. And so in frustration, what you do is every day you, you go out into the river and you pick up the trash, pick up the debris. Listen, you can do that every day, but no matter how much you deal with the trash, the debris that's downstream you're not doing anything about where it's coming from upstream. At some point, you got to walk up the river and figure out where the trash is coming from, where the debris is coming from. You can't just keep dealing with what's downstream. You at some point have to deal with what's upstream. Because if you don't stop the source, then all you're dealing with is the symptoms. Church, so many of us, the way we deal with our sin is by dealing with what's downstream. We're just collecting trash. We're trash collectors. Oh, there's another one. There's more debris. There's another issue. According to Paul, the way we kill sin at its root is not just by dealing with the symptoms, what's downstream, but by going up the river and figuring out what's upstream. Not just the fruit, but the root of our sin. You see, here's the thing. If you're sitting here today and you're a believer, I have no doubt that you theologically accept Jesus as Lord. I think if all of us took a, if you're a believer here, if we took a systematic theology test, you'd probably pass. Get that question right. Jesus is Lord. But do you know that Jesus can be your Lord theologically but not functionally? Did you know that there's something that can be true in your head but not actually true in your heart? Some of us, we, we, we confess Jesus as Lord, theologically, but functionally, 
the thing that gives us life, that's what Paul says in verse 3, that Christ is our life. That's what we learned last week. Functionally, our life is our career. Our life is our reputation. Our life is our education. Our life is our family. Our life is our retirement. Functionally, the way you're living doesn't reflect what you claim to believe. And again, I'm not casting stones. I have a two-by-four in my eye. Theologically, I confess Jesus as Lord. But functionally, I'm not sure if that's always true. Here's the thing that we have to understand. Many times, uh, we, we tend to approach sin like a game of tag. Every morning we wake up and sin is it and we can't get tagged. And we spend the whole day just avoiding sin. Oh, there's sin over there. Let me not go over there. Oh, there's sinful people over there. Let me go that way. Right? And we spend the whole day playing tag with sin. And at the end of the day, we determine if it was a successful day or not by how much we were tagged or not tagged. But what if I told you that to truly put off the old and put on the new, we aren't just running from something, but we're running to something. The, the best way for you to deal with the sin in your life is not to run away from it all the time, but that you run away from it by running to someone else. And the more I run after my Savior, and the more I behold the beauty of my Savior and the glory and the majesty of my Savior, the more I expose the ugliness and nastiness of my sin. So the first way we kill sin in our life is by dealing with it internally. The, the second way, though, that we kill sin in our life, the, the second way that we put sin off, like Paul says we should, is by dealing with it externally. Not just internally, but externally. W what do I mean by that? Well, again, the word there, the phrase there, put to death, means to cut the supply line, okay? I would argue that for many of us, the sins that we commit are not on accident. For many of us, the sins that we struggle with the most almost always have a pattern that precede them. There are certain steps and phases that happen before we get to that final temptation. And then we get tempted and we're like, oh, well, got me again. But for many of us, especially those deep-rooted sins, the ones that we really struggle with daily, they, 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 we don't just show up and be like, oh, here it is. No, no, there, there's steps and phases and patterns that precede it. So, so let me give you an example. And maybe for you, you're sitting here today and your struggle is sexual immorality. Paul says that, that one of the sins that he, he talks about here is sexual morality. Sexual morality is a big word, but all it means is like a junk drawer where all the other sexual sins are put. It's a big word for all sexual sin. Maybe you're struggling with sexual morality, with, with lust, with pornography, let's say. I would argue that by the time you fall into the sin of lust and pornography, there's probably several steps that have happened already. You don't just accidentally end up in that place doing that thing. And maybe for you, in order to cut the supply line, you buy software that keeps you from going to certain websites. Maybe for you, you go to bed when everybody else goes to bed. Maybe for you, there's certain technology that you leave in the other room. Maybe for you, you call someone up and ask them to hold you accountable. You see what I'm saying? We have to cut 
the supply line of sin. We can't keep acting like we're victims when we're victors. See, a lot of us, we approach sin looking for victory. But we don't deal with our sin for victory, but from victory. We are more than conquerors, church. But when we allow uh, these, these, these same patterns and these same cycles, and if you're honest, subconsciously, you know you're going to do it. It's already happening. It's already playing off. It's playing off. It's the same thing every week or every day or every night. And then you get there, you're like, oops. Another example, maybe for you it's not a sexual struggle. Uh, maybe for you it's an emotional struggle. Maybe, maybe what you're struggling with is you struggle with feelings of worthlessness. You struggle with feelings of inadequacy. You, you struggle with feelings of insecurity. Well, what you have to ask yourself is what are the things that cause that in my life? Maybe there's certain people you just shouldn't hang out with anymore. Maybe there are certain people you just shouldn't follow anymore on social media. Or maybe you get rid of social media. I know that's crazy. But we can't keep ending up in the same places and ignore the steps we took to get there. We have to cut the supply line. We have to. Or maybe for you it's some sort of habit that you need to break. Whether it's overeating or maybe it's a a procrastination or whatever it is. Whatever it is that you're trying to break that you know, I'm not honoring the Lord in this way. Don't buy that thing. Don't go to that place. Don't hang out with that person. Be honest with yourself. Because if you're not willing to kill sin at its root, then you can't complain about the fruit. You can't. If you don't like what's downstream then kill what's upstream. If you don't like what's on the conveyor belt, then stop the supply line. That's what Paul is calling us to do. So, now that we've seen uh, what it looks like to put off sin, to put off the old man, the old nature, the old self, what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to look at what it looks like and what it means for us to put on the new. To put on the new. And to do that, I want to read for you verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So according to Paul, the the second step that we as believers are called to take on a daily, consistent basis is not only should we be putting off the old, but we should be putting on the new. And what's beautiful about these verses, 12 through 17, is that the Apostle Paul actually unpacks for us three benefits that we have access to if we are in Christ. 
The first benefit, if you're taking notes, is the grace of Christ. The second benefit is the peace of Christ. And then the third benefit is the word of Christ. So his grace, his peace, and his word. The first benefit that Paul says we have access to that enables us and empowers us to put off the old and put on the new is the grace of Christ. Now, where do I see that? Well, let me reread for you verse 12 through 14. Paul says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the first thing we see here in this passage is the grace of Christ. Now, now here's one of the ways we see the grace of Christ. Man, I really hope this encourages you today because I know that the Lord used it to encourage me. There are three words in the passage that Paul uses to describe believers, those who are in Christ. Not those who are in Adam, but those who are in Christ. The, the first word is chosen. Uh, the second word is holy. And then the third word is beloved. Let's, let's work through these words. The first word that Paul uses is the word chosen. The word there, chosen, in the Greek means elect. It literally means to be selected from a crowd, to be picked out from an audience. It means, and I, and I kid you not, this is what it means. It means to be someone's favorite. So think about this. I'm not saying you're God's favorite because you're so special. Let me, let me explain what that means. Since Jesus is God's favorite, when you place your faith in Jesus, you are in Christ. You put on Christ. So you are God's favorite because Jesus is God's favorite. But that's not the only word he uses. He doesn't just use the word chosen. He uses the word holy. The word holy, we've looked at that before. It means to be set apart. It means to be uh, uh, dedicated, to be consecrated for the things of God. And then the third word he uses is the word beloved, which is the Greek word agape. And that describes the one-way, unconditional love of God. So according to Paul, the word there agape, let me tell you this, it's love based on perceived value. Not actual value, praise God for that, but love based on perceived value. God perceives you as valuable, and so he loves you in light of how he perceives you. It means to find someone pleasing to you, well pleased with someone, to find someone, to be content with someone. God is content with us in Christ. When Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water and Jesus says, God says, behold, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now because we are in Christ, God is well pleased with us. Not because of our baptism or because of our faith or because of our works, but because of his work. So, what we see here is the grace of Christ. Now, here's the thing. And this is what kind of blew my mind this week as I was studying these words. The words that are used to describe us in this passage were actually used prior to this to describe someone else. When you look at the entirety of the New Testament, these three Greek words are used to describe somebody else. And that person is not Abraham, that person is not Adam, that person is not David, that person is not Solomon, that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Before they described us, they described him. That's what 
we see. But the question is this. If, if you're anything like me, the question is, if these words ultimately describe Jesus, then how do they all of a sudden describe us? Like, how does that happen? Well, before I answer that question, let me tell you this. Before things get better, they actually get way worse. Why? Because when you go back to verse 6 of this passage, we find out that because of our sins, the wrath of God is coming down on anyone who behaves that way. So what do we deserve in light of our lives? The wrath of God. Verse 6. So the question that you have to ask then is, hold on, hold on. How in the world do we go from the unavoidable wrath of God in verses 5 through 11 to the unconditional love of God in verses 12 through 17? The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. Is the cross. I don't know if you've ever seen the cross in this light, but what we discover is that at the cross, Jesus Christ, he took the consequences of verses 5 through 11 so that we might receive the blessings of verses 12 through 17. At the cross, Jesus tasted the penalty of death so that by faith in him, we might taste the blessings of life. At the cross, Jesus Christ took the full wrath of God so that by faith in him, we might experience the full love of God. Church, that'll preach. And what I love about this passage, and I don't want you to miss the order. If you're reading this passage wrong, if you're reading this passage from a religious, legalistic lens, you will completely misunderstand what, Jesus is actually, what Paul is actually saying about the gospel. You would think that what Paul is saying is that the more compassionate you are, the more loving you are, the more kind you are, the more forgiving you are, then you will become chosen. Then you will become holy. Then you will become beloved. But what I love about the passage is that the identity comes before the activity. Paul wants you to know that these words, these titles, they're not achieved. They are received. They are not earned. They are given. They are not attained. They are gifted. And what's beautiful about this passage, church, is in verse 9, we, we see Paul use the language of putting off. We've been talking about that, putting off, taking off, stripping away. That's what it says in verse 9, that we are to strip away our sin. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that this is not the only time in Scripture we see this word used. As a matter of fact, as I did a word study this week, my heart was filled when I understood that this Greek word is actually used multiple times in the New Testament. And every time I looked at it in its different context, it gave me a deeper understanding and appreciation for the gospel. Let me, let me kind of walk you through my journey. You ready? Let me welcome you into my office a little bit. In Matthew 27, we see the same Greek word used to put off, but in that context, it's describing Jesus being stripped by the religious leaders and by the Roman soldiers. His robe was stripped away before he was killed on the cross. That's the first time you see that word. But then what's beautiful is that it's not the last time you see that word. Because in Colossians 2, verse 15, we see that word being used again. Same Greek word, but this time 
What it says is that at the cross, Jesus Christ disarmed, same Greek word, he disrobed, he stripped away the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Do do you get this? What What he's saying is, when you understand what the gospel means, what that means is, is that what seemed like an apparent defeat has become an overwhelming victory, church. That's beautiful. So then when he uses the word again here, that we are to strip away our sin, you look at it totally different now. The reason why we can strip away the presence of sin today is because at the cross, Jesus stripped away the penalty and power of sin. Man, uh, for me, as I I see this, what this means is, is that when we place our faith in Jesus, we go from being in Adam and getting what he deserved, verses 5 through 11, to being in Christ and getting what he deserved, verses 12 through 17. Listen, sometimes the way to appreciate what you've been given is by putting it on the backdrop of something else. The the way for us to appreciate what we've received, verses 12 through 17, is by putting it on the backdrop of what we deserved, verses 5 through 11. I don't know if you know this, but this is a a trick that jewelers like to play on people. When you go to a jeweler and you're buying a necklace or a bracelet or a ring, they, they, they almost always have a black mat that they put the jewelry on. Why is it a black mat? Because the blackness, the darkness of the mat magnifies the beauty of the jewelry. Listen, the only way that verse 12 through 17 is going to mean something to you is if you put it on the backdrop of verses 5 through 11. Once you understand what you deserved, it all of a sudden changes the way you view what you received. We talked about uh, uh, in in, in the In Christ series, the, the, the necklace of the gospel. And all the things that are true of us are in Christ. Being in Christ is the necklace, and all those benefits are the pearls. But what's beautiful about the gospel is that the, the, the jewelry of the gospel, the necklace of the gospel, becomes that much more beautiful. The beauty of what you received becomes that much more beautiful on the backdrop of what you deserved. Church, when you see that, it doesn't manipulate, manipulate your hands to behave. It melts your heart to believe. So we see the grace of Christ. But the other benefit that we have access to is the peace of Christ. Where do I find that? Look at verse 15. I love this one. This is so good. Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of Christ is the second benefit we are given. The the word there, peace, church, it it literally means to have freedom from worry. It means to be undisturbed. So, So the word picture there is of a body of water that hasn't been touched. It's laying still. The peace of Christ. But that's not the only word that I want to highlight. The other word I want to highlight, which is a weird word to find in this text, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. That word rule is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. 
The word there, rule, literally means to give something control, to let something have the final say or verdict. And the word picture there is of an umpire or a referee or a judge in the Greek Olympic Games. During the Greek Olympic Games, there were judges, there were referees who enforced the rules. They were the ones who determined who won, who lost, who was disqualified. It literally was a judge, an umpire, who refereed the games. That's the word picture that Paul wants us to have when it says that we must allow the peace of Christ to rule. Church, here's why this is good news and why the peace of Christ is essential for you and me if we are going to be people who put off sin and put on salvation. Here's why. Because vertically, here's what this means. The only way that you and I are ever going to experience the peace of God, sorry, the only way we're ever going to experience horizontally the peace of God is if we vertically have peace with God. God. You get what I'm saying? So maybe there's people here today who the reason why you're not feeling the peace of God horizontally is because you don't have peace with God vertically. But the vertical produces the horizontal. But here's the thing. You can be here today and be a believer, and when you forget that you have peace with God, all of a sudden you lose the peace of God. You start to get disturbed you lose that freedom from worry. So, so a believer can live like a non-believer if they forget who they are. You can be just as anxious and just as worried and just as freaked out as your non-believing neighbor. Because when you forget that you have peace with God vertically, you will not experience the peace of God horizontally. But here's the other thing. If it's true that the peace of Christ should rule in our hearts, that's a game-changing concept. Here's why. Remember what I said the, the word rule meant. It was an umpire, a referee, a judge, an arbitrator, deciding who won, who lost, who was qualified, who was disqualified. Think about what this means, church. If what Paul's saying is true, then we as believers need to allow because it ain't going to happen unless we allow it. We need to allow the peace of Christ to have the, the final say, call, and verdict in our life. That who, that's who has the final verdict. So in other words, the final say and verdict over our hearts and families and churches and lives should be the peace of Christ. And like I said earlier, I really do feel like someone needs to hear this today because I'm not sure you're actually believing this, Okay. If it's true, what Paul writes here, then what that means is the final verdict on your worth, your value, your significance, and your importance is not based on what the world says. It's not based on what your boss says. It's not based on what your parents say. Heck, it's not even based on what you say. It's based on what Jesus says. When you understand that you are already accepted and approved and forgiven and validated in the only eyes that matter in the universe, that'll give you peace. It just will. I, I was reading a devotional this week, and, and in it, the author said 
that one of the things he struggles with that I struggle with all the time is I struggle with losing my keys. I, I, I lose my keys often, right? And, and when I lose my keys, uh, it gets progressively worse it, it, like, as, as I look for them. Like the, the, the first 30 seconds, I'm like, okay, whoo, breathe, okay, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm usually running late too, so that doesn't help. And so uh, I, I'm, lo- I'm looking for my keys, and then about 30 seconds in, I go from like being totally calm to starting to freak out. And, I, and then I go into full victim mode. And I'm, con- I'm convinced that someone has taken my keys. The bunny, because we have a bunny and I don't like her. Uh, 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 my wife, I like her. My kids, I like them sometimes. And, and, I, and, I, and I just get in full-blown victim mode, convinced that someone took my keys. But many times, especially in the winter, I have my coat jacket and I'm freaking out and all of a sudden I touch the pocket and they're in my pocket. It's kind of awkward after that. Because <laughs> then I got to apologize to all the people who I just accused for the last three minutes that the keys were already in my pocket. Church, if the gospel is true, here's what's so crazy about us. It's what Paul Tripps calls gospel amnesia. We all have gospel amnesia. Every morning we wake up, we forget that we're accepted, that we're approved, that we're loved, that we're justified. And every morning we wake up frantic in our hearts, looking for that approval again, looking for that justification again, looking for that acceptance again. And all of a sudden, if you allow the Holy Spirit to do it, he reminds you that the keys are in your pocket. That that peace that you so desperately need that you're so desperately looking for in the world around you is in your pocket because the gospel is the skeleton key to all of life. So we see the grace, we see the peace, and the last thing we see is the word of Christ, of the word of Christ. Look at verse 16. Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, so, so the, the third and final benefit that we've been given is the word of Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. That phrase, the word of Christ, it's actually a very rare phase, uh, phrase in the New Testament. We often see the word of God, but we rarely see the phrase, the word of Christ. And what commentators say is that the word of Christ refers to the Bible in general and the gospel in particular. It refers to the word of God in general and the work of God on our behalf in particular. Paul says that now as believers, we have the ability, we have the opportunity to allow the word and work of Christ to dwell in our hearts richly. The word there, dwell, means to allow something to take permanent residence. To put the boxes away and allow that thing to move in. To make yourself a home. We have to allow the gospel to take permanent residence in our hearts. We have to allow it to move in. And in the word there, richly, it means not a little or partial, but we are to allow the word to move in abundantly to a great degree. Paul says that the more we marinate and saturate and soak our hearts with the gospel, the more, because he brings up singing here and teaching here, the more we will share and sing the gospel to our souls. See, so often when we think about sharing and singing, we think about here, right now, Sunday morning. But, but what if I told you that your public worship is a direct result of your private worship? So if you're not sharing and singing the gospel to yourself Monday through 
Saturday, don't be surprised when you can't sing it on Sunday. And I love what it says here that not only do we sing it to ourselves, but we sing it to each other. Because your brother and your sister, your spouse and your children and your friends need to hear the gospel just as much as you need the gospel. But if you don't preach the gospel to yourself or sing the gospel to yourself, you're not going to preach it and sing it to them. You're going to preach legalism. You're going to preach performance. But you're not going to give them grace because you can't give what you don't have. The word of God, the work of God has to dwell in us richly. And when it does, church, all of a sudden that list we talk about, compassionate hearts and kindness and gentleness and forgiveness, all of a sudden we put those things on because Jesus first displayed it to us. I can be compassionate to you. You know why? Because Jesus was compassionate to me. I can be kind to you. You know why? Because Jesus was kind to me. I can forgive you for your little debt because comparatively, Jesus has forgiven me for a much larger debt. As the word of Christ dwells in us, it becomes the song that we sing and the sermon that we preach. So what we discover in this passage is that in the gospel, we receive the power to do two things, to put off the old man, the old nature, and the old self. And at the very same time, we receive the power to put on the new man, the new nature, and the new self. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, and God, I pray as only the pastor of a church can pray. God, at the end of the day, you have made me the shepherd of this congregation. You are sovereign even over that. And God, I pray for the sheep that you have entrusted me with, understanding that at the end of the day, I am not the ultimate shepherd. I am an under-shepherd who needs the, the, the pasture of grace that everyone else needs. But God, I pray right now over our people, Whoever feels like they're stuck in a stronghold, whoever feels like they, 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 they can't put the sin away, they can't put the sin to death, I pray that today you would remind them that, even, that because you were stripped in what seemed like defeat, you now have stripped away the enemy. You have disarmed the rulers and the principalities, the authorities, and you have put them to open shame at the cross. Help us, Lord to approach our sin, not in order to get victory, but from victory. We love you, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.